truth, the life we believe you are the way, the truth, the life. Thanks, Sam. Good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing? It's good to see you. So uh, Jeremy, Deidre, and Lily, and Cohen are in Colorado. So just like last month, you're stuck with me and Sam this morning. Um, but it's OK. Um, we'll get through it, I promise. Quick, a uh, couple quick announcements. Um, this month, we have a lot going on. Um, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, I want to let you uh, remind you about um, Monday, we have Adoration with Kyler in Vickery Meadows. So we have Adoration Prayer in the morning at 6 a.m. online. Uh, hit up Kyler for the Zoom details, or you can join him in person at the center. Um, and then in the evenings, 6.30 to 7.30 at the center, Adoration Night, uh, song and worship um, and prayer together there in Vickery Meadows. Um, thank you, Kyler, for doing that so faithfully every week. Um, on Wednesday of this upcoming week, we have our monthly corporate fast. I want to remind you about that. Um, and so all our part day fast, um, and then we conclude our day of fasting with a prayer and worship gathering right here in this space. Um, and so the invitation is actually to anyone, um, whether or not you can fast that day or not. We invite you to not only join us for prayer uh, all day, but also join us in the evening for a time of gathered worship and prayer in the evening. Um, and then to the to the, uh, to the meal slide, we do have tables set up. We are having a meal um, after the gathering today. If you're new with us, we'd love for you to join us. I also just need to say um, quickly, understanding that things are changing really quickly for us, uh, all things considered with COVID, and just I know it's kind of a day-to-day -day thing. We kind of planned our month of August about two months ago as COVID seemed like it was kind of you know, turning a corner kind of thing. So I just feel like we should probably say, if you don't feel comfortable joining us for lunch, you're welcome to take a box lunch and go. That's our gift to you. Whether you're new to the family or you've been here for many years, we would love to feed you. And if you're not comfortable staying, um, we totally understand all of that. So just want to make sure that that um, invitation is kind of nuanced in that way. Um, we do love joining uh, together for meals. That's what we're talking about all month long, in fact. Um, but we understand that for certain people, it may make them a little nervous or uneasy, so we want to be aware of that. Or you can just join us for lunch, and you can sit way over here while the rest of us sit way over here, however you want to do that. It'll totally be fine. Um, I think that's it for announcements. I feel kind of hurried, so will you do me a favor and help slow me down? Let's pray, and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you for a morning to be together. Um, I do, I just feel a little anxious and a little hurried this morning. Would you steady the pace of my heart and my soul? Um, Father, help uh, this faith family be still in your presence and be calm and centered on Jesus this morning. Lord, we thank you for a time to be gathered together. As we say every Sunday, help us set our hearts, affections, and our minds' attention on you in the coming moments. I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to invite Lexi to the front. She's going to lead us in a reading from Psalm 34. You're welcome to stand. I bless God every chance I get. 
My lungs expand with his praise. Join me in spreading the news. Together, let's get the word out. God met me more than halfway. He freed me from my anxious fears. Look at him. Give him your warmest smile. Never hide your feelings from him. When I was desperate, I called out, and God got me out of a tight spot. Open your mouth. Wait. When I was desperate, I called out, and no. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him.
You guys are uh, kids, or you're helping out with kids. Um, you guys can go ahead and head on back now.
going to come up and read a scripture from Matthew 9. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those who think they are righteous For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Thank you, Rory. You you may be seated. Do this. I like the way um, the NLT, the New Living Translation, uh, puts that little story for us. Um, We're not going to be in Matthew. We're going to be in Luke. We're going to actually be in Luke all month long. Um, But I thought that that was a nice way... Um, to kind of set the table for us, if you will. Yeah, see how many food puns I can get in this morning. Um, But anyways, I think that really gets to the heart of something that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So I'd like to begin um, with a poem. Uh, I know that may sound kind of weird, but before I read you the poem, um, just, you know, uh, all my bread on the table, um, I'm, I'm really hoping that we can engage kind of our whole person this morning. So, um... If anybody's ever been to like a poetry reading or a poetry slam, so I'm trying to kind of get our, our bodies and our imaginations and our, even our stomachs a little bit 
involved this morning. So try this with me. Have you ever, have you ever done this before? You've been in a, yeah, there you go, okay. So typically in a poetry reading, you usually do that whether you like the poem or not. So you may not like the poem I'm about to read, but that really doesn't matter because it's just a, it's like a courtesy. And really, what does it mean to say you like a poem? I mean, it's just so radically subjective anyways. I mean, come on. There's no objective way to know whether or not you like a poem. All that to say, before I read this poem for you to begin our time together this morning, um, I need to set a little bit, uh, kind of need to preheat the oven, you know. Um, sorry, it's, these aren't written down. They're just coming to me. So this is, this is bad. Okay. But I do, I want to kind of give you a bit of a picture um, painted for you before I read you this poem. Um, when I was a kid, um, every summer, my brother and I would go to the sprawling metropolis of Springtown, Texas, and we would visit for about a week at a time, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, now, when we visited Meemaw and Papa's house, that's what we called them, we could be sure of a few things. First, we would probably help our pawpaw with some work around his farm and his ranch. They had some acreage, um, and we really probably just got in the way more than anything. Um, we would typically play in the dirt and in the woods a lot, and then we would usually eat our weight in food and drink our weight in sweet tea. Like, that was what we did at Meemaw and Pawpaw's house. And one of our favorite meals at Meemaw's house was French toast. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. My brother and I a piece would eat a loaf of French toast every morning for that whole week. Um, we loved Meemaw's French toast. We would come to the, to the, she had like a little serve bar. It was just on the other side of the stove. So you could kind of imagine um, two kids, maybe 10 or 11 years old, at the serve bar every morning. Meemaw there, she's just basically cooking the French toast taking it right off the skillet, putting it right on our plate, using the same spatula to get the butter, putting it on. I mean, it's just so good. Few things are better um, than a large glass of sweet tea and French toast right in the morning. And I have a confession to make. I don't use syrup on French toast. I know that's probably weird. You may be wanting to excommunicate me now. But I would just, like, double the portion of butter on the French toast, and that was the syrup for me. No eggs, no bacon, nothing else, just French toast. And this was our morning routine. Normally, this meal would last probably half the morning. I mean, you've got to imagine a grandmother. She can only kind of maybe cook at most two pieces at a time, each one taking maybe three or four minutes to cook 24 pieces of you know, French toast. This was like a big deal. So our morning started this way. Typically, afterwards, we might... Um, watch the Rockford Files. Does anybody know the Rockford Files? It's an old James Garner show. So we would watch reruns of Rockford Files with my Meemaw, and then we would go off to help Pawpaw and to do all the other things that we would do. But the point is, these magical summer days all began with a meal. They always began with this ritual of French toast. And so that is the title of the poem that I want to read for you now. It's called French Toast. I wrote it for my grandmother a couple years back. It goes like this. As kids in summer, she made French toast. And we ate, and we ate, and the most peculiar thing, like 5,000 from five loaves, there seemed to always be more than enough. And now adulthood, such a funny thing, where as kids is but a fond memory. And yet, still, there seems 
could be more than enough of that peculiar thing, a grandmother's love. Good, good, okay, thank you. So I wanted to share this with you um, because it kind of gets at the heart of what we're talking about all this month. The point of this breakfast ritual at my grandmother's house was never about the French toast. It wasn't about the quality of the food. It wasn't about, like, you know, um, the value of the dinnerware or the cuisine. I mean, most often we ate on plastic plates, drank from plastic cups. Mima was probably still in her robe. We were probably sleepy-eyed, still in our pajamas. No one got dressed up. No one, it wasn't, there was no pomp and circumstance about these meals. They were rather ordinary in the flow of that week we spent at Mima and and Papa's. But the impact of these meals, as you might tell, the way that I kind of glowingly tell you about them, has lasted a lifetime. I don't really remember what we talked about over these meals. There was no life-changing conversation that I had as a 10-year-old over French toast. But these meals formed me. They stuck with me. They changed me. And in fact, they're still changing me today. Because above all, what was communicated by these meals was that I was loved, that I was cared for, not only by my grandmother, but that I was a part of an entire family to which I belonged and in which I was always going to be welcome, even if I have forgotten that sometimes and still do to this day. And so, just as a quick aside before we continue, pro tip, this is worth the price of admission all by itself. If you want to express to someone that you care about them, that you love them, that you like them, cook for them. It really is that simple. I don't know, anybody watch Ted Lasso? Take a play out of Ted Lasso. Make morning biscuits every morning, and you will turn this person, and put, you will make them like you. It's, un, it's, it's inevitable. Cook for them. It doesn't have to be good or fancy. Nothing expresses care and love more than a meal. <clears throat> more than a meal than you have prepared and cooked and planned and taken time out of your day and served and given to this other person. It's almost as if Christ knew what he was doing when he gave us this meal called communion. Now, I'm sure all of us have had an experience like the one that I've kind of described and, you know, that the poem is kind of based on, right? Maybe for you it was something similar at at your grandparents' house when you were a kid, or maybe it was the reception at your wedding, or maybe it is a Thanksgiving lunch or a Christmas dinner uh, tradition that your family keeps. Maybe it's a 4th of July barbecue or a picnic in the park. Whatever the occasion, um, my guess and my hope is that none of us have to think very hard or look very far to to find a meal like this that just kind of represents um, joy and happiness and goodness and belonging. Because food is almost always paired with the important events in our life, if you think about it. Baby showers, birthdays, weddings, funerals, everything important. A meal shows up. Justin Early, in his great little book, The Common Rule, um, this is on our website as part of our Following Jesus recommended readings, um, but it's a really good book. I recommend it to all of you. But he says this. He says, think through all the ways the values of love are communicated over food. We serve each other. We clean up after each other. We take turns. We share. We fight and forgive. We praise and compliment. We express gratitude. We tell stories and ask questions. We listen. We hear each other pray. The norms of our table signal the norms of our community. 
And so, here to begin, again, we're trying to engage our whole person this morning. I'm, I invite you now, if you need to close your eyes, if that helps you imagine, um, take a minute and recall to mind that meal that mattered to you. That meal that you, that first comes to mind that you remember. Where were you? Where are you eating? Who are you with? Try to remember the sights and the smells and the sounds. What is most important to you in that meal or in that memory, that moment? Is it the food or is it really about who you're with? What did you experience? Love? joy, abundance, safety. If you could sum up the experience in one word, what would it be? And I apologize for Brianna back there. So during the entire month of August, you can open your eyes. This is kind of what we're going to be looking at. Meals together. We're going to look at several stories from the book of Luke, as Jeremy told us last week, and as I mentioned earlier, where Jesus shares meals with various people. Because apparently, and as I hope my little story demonstrates, and maybe even your memory might um, help demonstrate, meals are important. They do something to us. And And Jesus seemed to think so as well. As one author put it, Jeremy quoted this last week, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. And Jesus invited his followers, and that's us, kind of to do the same thing, to do what he did. I mean, it's funny, even the scripture that um, Rory read for us, if you remember, it's Matthew, come, follow me. Bam, next scene, they're at his house doing dinner. It's like as if that is kind of part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. Come follow me. Where are we going? We're going to go eat. So our idea is to do what Jesus did, to take on his way of life, his means, his methods, the habits and practices that made up his life, how he lived. And until recently, probably maybe 100 to 75 years or so ago, um, up until then, meals were actually the primary means by which the church came together, had community, and evangelized the world, if for lack of a better way of saying it. Was it programs, not tent revivals, no seeker-sensitive worship nights, but dinner? That was it. As Norman Wiersbe puts it in a little book called Food and Faith, the evidence of the early church suggests that the community of followers, the evidence of the early church suggests that the community of followers ate together regularly and often, and that in their eating, they tried to bear witness to Christ's way of dwelling on earth. So in our attempt to do what Jesus did, to take up his way of life, to follow him, this is what we're talking about, sharing meals, Together, sharing meals together. Because there's something about meals together that embodies the kingdom of God. There's something about meals together that embodies the kingdom of God. If we pay attention and we don't do that thing that we so often do as good Christians in 2021 and just over-spiritualize everything to the point where nothing really has any spiritual import anymore. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a a purely spiritual creature. And that is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. 
We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. In fact, I think if I could just sum up this whole month for us um, in kind of one sentence and distill it down, I would say it in as few words like this. Meals are not merely a metaphor. They are a reality of the kingdom of God. Meals embody the kingdom. They don't just point to it. In an important sense, they are it. And now maybe that strikes you as funny, and you think that's a bit overstated, and perhaps it is, and just to make a point. But perhaps there's a reason why God tells the Israelites that he will rescue them from their oppressors in Egypt, and then bring them into a promised land. He will bring them into a promised land flowing with milk and honey, with food and drink. So meals matter. They're important. I've belabored the point. Um, they embody the kingdom, enact the good news of the gospel. So let's just call that, that was our appetizer. That's just kind of like something nice and light to kind of get the conversation going, and bring us all to the table. And so now we move on to the second course of the meal, which oftentimes is a soup, but today it's kind of more like a salad. We're going to have salad because salads, not everybody likes salads. Sometimes they're kind of bitter, and you know, but they're nutritious and they're good for you, so you should eat them. So, with all of that in mind, I want to submit to you the following. It is precisely to the degree that meals embody the kingdom of God that they also expose in us all the ways in which the kingdom has yet to come in our lives. I'll say that again. It's kind of a mouthful. (laughs) did it again. Um, It is precisely to the degree that meals embody the kingdom of God that they also expose in us all the ways the kingdom has yet to come in our lives. That is, meals are like a mirror. They kind of show us something about ourselves and about our understanding of of who God is and what he's about. So first, to kind of begin with, some of us just have sort of a strange and weird relationship with the food itself. When we talk about meals, we have to talk at least a little bit about food. So on the one hand, We eat too much, we drink too much, we eat for the wrong reasons, we drink for the wrong reasons. We don't just binge on food and drink, we binge on things about food. 24-hour food networks, YouTube videos, constantly kind of, you know, coffee, beer, whiskey, brew your own beer, all that kind of stuff, right? Guilty, as charged. James Hoffman, anybody? Um, Anyways, so yeah, we see food maybe as a temptation, maybe... Um, Yeah, as a temptation to kind of be overcome or a sin pattern to guard against. And if we're honest, often it feels like a losing battle. Or we take food kind of on the other extreme so seriously um, that we count every calorie, are mindful of every macro, everything must be organic, it must be local, and food kind of becomes this like anxiety-laden bomb, just kind of waiting to go off at any moment. And if I could say as gently and nicely as I could, if you're one of those people, you're kind of ruining it for the rest of us. But, anyways. On the other hand, now this is more my camp, on the other hand, some of us just kind of refuse to acknowledge the goodness, the gift that food could be if we accepted it as such. Like, we just see it as an inconvenience, it's an annoyance. Like, I would, as an adult... As busy as I think I am, I would just rather like 
Just give me like a pill I can take once a day so that I don't have to think about this anymore. The endless cycle of planning, grocery shopping, cooking, cleaning, blah, blah, blah. Like I, that's me. I don't really care about all that. I would rather just have a number one with a large Dr. Pepper from Whataburger so I can eat it alone in my car and get on with the rest of my day. Jim Gaffigan, anybody, has literally made a career out of making fun of our weird, strange, weird relationships with food. And so, furthermore, in today's culture, food has kind of taken on um, this weird kind of like cultish thing um, where the food you eat kind of expresses your identity and the values you keep and signals the kind of person you want to be. And so it's like Teslas go with organic butternut squash soup from Whole Foods and beer and barbecue, craft beer and barbecue goes with like beards and big tires. Like this is who I am. It's part of my personal brand. But to be frank, all of this is really quite beside the point anyways. Because the important thing to remember as we talk about meals together, shared meals, is that the food really isn't the point, at least not the most important point. As Paul wrote to the Roman church, he was speaking about kind of communion, which at that time was an entire meal shared together. It wasn't just a bread and a cup and a little wafer thing. It was a whole meal that they came together to dine on. And talking to them about this meal, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the kingdom of God, and the way that we're talking about the way meals embody the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of what you eat or what you drink, but of the righteousness and peace and the joy that is present in that shared meal. Good, tasty, healthy food certainly helps. It's just not primary. The point is not to eat more, it is, eat, it is to eat with others more. <clears throat> but our individual relationships with food is really only the beginning. Because if we actually kind of turn the rock over and see what's crawling around underneath when we think about how we dine together, what we eat together, if we actually turn this around and kind of look at it, what we see is there's a whole ecosystem underneath in all the ways that we have kind of forgotten or misplaced or even corrupted the inherent goodness in sharing meals together. My guess is that some of us are probably just thinking right now like, hey, the idea of having even a friend over for dinner kind of stresses me out, so please just pump the brakes, Chaz. The idea of having someone I don't know over for dinner is like completely overwhelming. And I'll be honest, I'm kind of right there with you. My my season of life right now just makes me super anxious about having people over to our house. I won't go into that. Um, because meals are difficult, aren't they? Preparing meals, sharing meals, being hospitable, it's messy. It can be stressful. And it requires us to get kind of up close and personal with others. Meals require us to slow down, which most of us do not like to do. Meals are so ordinary and so mundane that they often just go overlooked. You just kind of skip right over them. They don't always go as planned, and especially when you find yourselves at a table with someone you don't know that well. But even family dinners, as I'm sure all of you know, can also be tough. An unresolved conflict, 
coarse word, an emotional wound that is yet to heal, they kind of all come to the table with us and kind of demand to be dealt with. And again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, add to this in today's culture, um, meals really do kind of signal class and status and wealth. They're no longer an offer of welcome and embrace, but of exclusion and division. Who's at the meal signifies just as much as who is not at the meal, which we'll talk more about that next week in Luke chapter 14. So all of that to say, I know this feels like a long intro about meals, but um, if we're honest, we care a lot about who we eat with. It's like we're all still stuck in high school, in the cafeteria, you get your lunch tray, you turn the corner, and there's like a sea of people, and you have to kind of choose that first day of school. Who are you going to be? Who are you going to eat with? You're going to eat with the popular kids, cool kids, you're going to eat with the stoners and the loners, the jocks, the freaks and geeks, or are you going to do what some of us do, just I'm going to eat by myself with, a nose in the, with my nose in the book, and just leave me alone. Because there's something about eating and dining together that not only brings us apart, but when done poorly, pulls us apart. Brings us together, pulls us apart, sorry. So I kind of have a quick story um, to tell you about this that kind of illustrates this point, which is kind of self-deprecating and kind of checks all the boxes this morning um, as an illustration, so I have to share it with you. And then I promise we'll get on We'll get on to this. Um, so about a month or so ago, um, we had a little small birthday dinner for our daughter, Brianna. Um, she really likes hibachi grills, and we hadn't been able to go in quite some time, so we were like, we're going to take Brianna for her birthday. We're going to go to hibachi. So we invited very few people. It was like, there was five of us, I think, um, and four of us were there. And we were waiting on our table, and we knew that this fifth person, a family member of mine, was coming. And she was coming directly from a political rally. Now, this particular political rally, by the way, this has this is this the whole point of the story is not politics at all. It has nothing to do with your political situation or orientation. It just factors in. She was coming from a particular political rally that like leaned way right. Let's just say it that way, okay? And she was coming dressed in like kind of a uniform, if that makes sense, displaying how invested she was in this particular political party. Um, She was wearing a hat that had a certain president's name on it in very large letters. That's not that big a deal. What was kind of a big deal is it was bedazzled. It It had rhinestones spelling out this name with like a big American flag. And so regardless of where you land on the political spectrum, it doesn't matter who you voted for in November. Um, my guess is most of us don't want to, it just was going to be weird, you guys. I was so embarrassed. I was like, this is freaking me out. It's like, I don't, and, and so we're like, oh my gosh, she can't wear the hat. She can't wear that. She can't come. To, we just got to tell her not to come. Maybe she should just not come if she, or just tell her not to wear the hat. And so it was this big deal. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to Hibachi, but when you go to Hibachi and you have a small party, Usually they sit you with people you don't know to fill the rest of the table. So we're sitting there, we're waiting, we're already anxious about this hat that's coming to have dinner with us, and the hostess um, calls our name and says, okay, let's go, and we are going to be set with two gentlemen that we don't know that I can say as nicely, knowing their children present, 
are of a certain orientation that they definitely didn't agree with the hat that was coming to dinner. They're on the other end of the political spectrum, and they may be on a date for all we know. And so it just suddenly got to be like, oh my gosh, we're, this is really about to happen. Amber's like texting, please just don't, don't come. I don't know if this is gonna be a good idea. This is gonna be so awkward. This is gonna be so strange. I say all that to illustrate the point that what ended up happening was fine. There was, it wasn't awkward. It wasn't weird. Um, we had a good dinner. We had nice conversation. Um, I initially just wanted to kind of crawl under the table and cover my head with a napkin. But by the end of the dinner, I was fine. In fact, the two gentlemen that joined us for dinner that we didn't know were super gracious. They had conversation. One of them invited to come. He's like a chocolatier. He makes like fine chocolate. He invited us to come and visit his restaurant. Everything was fine. But the point that I'm trying to make is that I was super embarrassed by this family member of mine that came to this dinner to the point that I wanted her not to come. And on the other side of that dinner, and as I've kind of reflected on it this week, preparing for this morning, I just, I mean, I, I, I have to repent of that, that twisted heart that, that makes my self-image or how I'll be perceived or who I share a table with, when I make that so primary that I'm not even willing to extend the offer of invitation to someone that I call family. Because this is not what meals are supposed to do. They're not meant to be exclusionary. They're not meant to divide or exclude. And my guess is that just like I'm thinking most of us have that memory of that perfect meal that we imagined at the beginning of the gathering, um, we probably also have that disaster meal that really kind of showed you some things you didn't want to see. Maybe it was based on who was coming to the meal. You thought, I really don't want these people coming. Or maybe it was, you really wanted these people there, but then when they got there, things just fell apart. Like Griswold Thanksgiving, food on the walls, just a knockdown, drag out. That is um, meals gone wrong. <clears throat> and so we need to do this, the hard work of kind of changing not merely how we think about the shared meal, but as we'll kind of see as we continue, that like via Jesus, we'll start to reorient how we think about sharing meals together. Seems that Jesus didn't think about food as merely fuel, but Jesus wanted to think about food as fellowship, which is a paradigm shift, um, if you ask me. And so, as so often happens with Christian spiritual growth, it starts with the heart, which is. Um, where we're going to be at today with our story from Luke chapter 7. So that was the salad, and now we'll turn to the main course. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, and you're welcome to turn there with me if you want to. It won't be on your screen, but you don't have to turn there, and I might even prefer that maybe you didn't. You can, you can reference the text um, as we go, but I'm also inviting you to maybe just get comfortable Again, use your whole person, your imagination, um, and to hear this text read and to experience this text, not as a brain on a stick, but like as a whole embodied human with you know, emotions and feelings and all of those things. So not only with your intellect, but with your imagination. Not only with your brain, but with your gut, with your emotions. 
calling on kind of all your faculties, heart, mind, soul, strength. As Paul prayed to the Ephesians, having the eyes of your heart enlightened as we read this text. So as we go through this text, who do you most identify with in this story? There's only a handful of characters. Who are you? Who do you, well, who are you and who would you maybe like to be? Um, What stands out? How do you feel? And what surprises you? Okay, so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. By the way, um, that little exchange there where Jesus says, I have something to say to you, and then goes and says, uh, you know, you gave me no water. Like, I don't think we read that and understand how incredibly rude it is that what Jesus is doing right there. Like, that would be if I was over at the whole camps and showed up at Chris and Dana's house and was kind of sitting there for a few minutes, and then all of a sudden I felt slighted, so I was like, Chris, I've been here, and you didn't offer me coffee or beer. You didn't turn off the TV when I sat down. You didn't even offer me a seat to sit in. What kind of host are you? Like, the, the degree of, like, offense that we should pick up on how Jesus is treating this guy is, is really kind of, like, abrasive. Like, it's, we, it, like, we can't even imagine saying that to a host. And here Jesus says it to Simon. By the way, other, another thing, that's not to pick on you guys. Y'all, like, are my example for hospitality and sharing meals. I shouldn't be up here. Chris and Dana should be up here. They kind of run a clinic on what it means to share meals together. So um, if you need to workshop this a little bit, just go hang out with Chris and Dana. Um, They'll show you the way. Okay, anyway, sorry, back to the story. Jesus says, 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So first, we'll just look, kind of consider for a moment this woman in this story. The woman in this story, um, I'm assuming most of us are at least somewhat familiar with this story or some version of this story. The woman is what we think she is. She's a woman of the city, a sinner, a prostitute. Um, At least all tradition kind of tells us that that is 99% sure what this woman's profession was. And so my question for all of us is, are you, on, are you okay with this? Like, are you really tracking with what's going on here? Are you on board with how Jesus is interacting with this woman? Like, are you comfortable with this exchange? Because if we're not scandalized by this story, at least a little bit, then we're not paying attention. Like, maybe we need to update it a little bit to make more sense of it. So again, using our whole person, our imaginations, you can close your eyes if you would like to, but you don't have to. Do this little thought experiment with me. Imagine you're in a similar setting. In that time and place, a woman of the city, sex worker, was kind of the lowest of the low on the moral and social hierarchy. And so if you were in a situation today having dinner with Jesus, who would that person be for you? Like, who is for you, the bottom of the moral, social ladder. Don't think about it too much. Whatever gut reaction you had, that's the person. That's who you, that type of person, maybe it's a specific person in your life. I I don't know, but that's the person that is now coming to have dinner with you and Jesus. So whoever that person is, can you honestly see them not only having dinner with you and Jesus, but having such an elaborate and intimate interaction with Jesus in such an affectionate way. You see yourself even sharing a table with this person. I think a lot of us like this idea in theory, but it's a wildly different story when it comes to actually finding ourselves around a table with the kinds of people that Jesus hung around with. Uh, As Chester, uh, Tim Chester points out, often our instincts are to keep our distance. But the Son of God ate with them, so whoever that person was for you. He's not embarrassed by them or their hat. He lets them kiss his feet. He's the friend of riffraff, traitors, the unrespectable, drunks, druggies, prostitutes, the mentally ill, the broken, the needy. People whose lives are a mess. I think I would, I would kind of add to that people whose lives are still a mess. Because for a lot of us, I think our initial reaction when we read this story or when we come across kind of the similar stories like this in the Gospels is we kind of read into it this story of dramatic conversion. Because we all love a good born-again story, right? Like, here's this woman... Um, she's a prostitute, or I was a drug addict, or uh, my life was just a total mess. But Jesus saved me, and now I'm better. Most of us see this woman sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
and just instinctively kind of read this into this story. And to be fair, it, it's probably there a little bit. I mean, I, there's no reason to say that it's not the case. But I think our experience, like your experience, my experience, kind of tells us that it's not that simple, is it? I mean, nothing in the text, in fact, so your experience aside, nothing in the scripture actually tells us that she's turned her life around already, that she's no longer a prostitute. Nothing tells us that she's not still living the only way of life that she's ever known. It just says she's heard about Jesus, something has clicked, and now she's in front of Jesus at his feet, worshiping. For all we know, she's still caught up in that way of life that we would certainly disagree with, that Jesus would probably certainly disagree with. And in fact, to be quite honest, her behavior is radically inappropriate by, by the standards of her day and by the standards of our day, like socially, morally. The point, I guess, that I'm trying to make is this. The woman is not following any of the rules, not following any of the rules that Simon adheres to, that the Pharisees adhered to from the Torah. She's not really following any of the rules that you and I today would think are um, you know, appropriate for a Christian meal together. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't reject her. In fact, he defends her, as, you, as we read a moment ago. Simon, when I got here, but she did this. You didn't, but she did. Because it seems for Jesus that it, it just seems like with his interaction with this woman and so many others in Scripture, and my guess is whatever interactions you all have had with Jesus, it seems that relationship takes precedence over rules. In other words, relationship comes first, rules follow. It's not that rules don't matter. It's not that they're unimportant. They just aren't first or primary. There's a reason why God first rescues Israel from Egypt and only then gives, him the ten, gives them the Ten Commandments. But I think most of us do this strange thing where we hold non-Christians to Christian standards. We expect them to live by the rules that we live by, and then we judge them and hold them accountable when they don't. I mean... Have you ever thought about it for two seconds? That's kind of a weird thing to do. Why do we think that those who have no relationship with Jesus would follow his rules? That's what Simon's doing. Perhaps the most important thing to notice in this story is how differently Jesus interacts with Simon and the woman and how differently each of them experience Jesus and how each of them experience one another and how each of them experience themselves. I think it's this difference that will kind of clue us in um, to what's most important and what's at the heart of this story. Spoiler alert, this uh, story really basically kind of, in, at least in my opinion, kind of prefigures, not my, only my opinion, but it prefigures the prodigal son. I mean, here we have this wasteful, irresponsible sinner come home, and then we have this older brother figure type who's a little disgruntled, at the treatment she receives. And like the familiar story of the prodigal son, this meal that we're given witness to in Luke 7 exposes our hearts and the ways that we have misunderstood the grace and the character of God. 
Because the difference between Simon and the woman is that Simon is still obsessed with the rules. She's not following the rules and he can't handle it. It is his preference for rules that keeps Simon from his relationship with Jesus. I think the danger for you and I, as those who know the rules, so to speak, is to fall for this trap and to be like Simon. Tim Chester again says it well. Whenever we look down on someone for being smelly or disorganized or lazy or emotional or promiscuous or socially inept or bitter, then we're like graceless Simon. And if we look down on people for not understanding grace, then we are like graceless Simon. If you're thinking about how this applies to someone else, then you're like Simon. I think you and I are prone to be like Simon. The parable that Jesus tells Simon, you know, a certain moneylender has two debtors, etc., is really meant to show Simon something about himself. I mean, it's telling us a lot about who God is and what God's about, but it's also trying to kind of show Simon about how he's gotten off the mark. It's meant to show you and I um, something that, that I'm calling, I don't know, I don't think this is original to me, but something that I'm just calling the law of grace. The law of grace. And I would define what I mean this way. To the degree that you have understood your need for the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, that is the degree to which you will extend it to others. The law of grace. The degree that you have understood your need for the grace and forgiveness of Jesus is the degree to which you will extend it to others. Or as Jesus said earlier in Luke, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Or as Rory read for us at the beginning, I did not come to call the righteous, but those who know they are sick. So, of course, this law of grace that I've coined here, I don't, I'm not trying to be too dogmatic about it, but it does kind of seem to me that, in a way, Jesus here is kind of describing something that's kind of fundamental about the nature of salvation and our relationship with God, like a principle, like, like gravity or Newton laws in physics or um, uh, the law of non-contradiction in logic or um, the principle of identity in philosophy. Like, they're just... It's just the way things are. Jesus says it plainly to Simon and to the woman. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, of course, this isn't about who has the longer rap sheet. Like, hey, look at all that I did and I got forgiven more. But it is about who understands their need for Jesus, the law of grace. The degree that you understand your need for Jesus is the degree that you will extend the invitation to others. So the story is meant to kind of move us from the seat of Simon, who is just not getting it, and to kind of try to move us into the place of the woman in the story. Because it's not just how they see Jesus, but it's also how they see themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness. He has no sense of his need for Jesus. But the woman has a strong sense of her brokenness. She knows that her life is a mess. She knows that she hasn't put things together 
just yet. And so she sees Jesus as who he is, someone who can save her. And she sees Jesus as someone that accepts her anyways. So she displays her overwhelming love for him. I'm reminded um, of that scene in the Old Testament where David, they're doing that big parade, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, and David is like dancing naked through the streets, and his wife is mad at him because she's like, you're breaking the rules, you can't do this. And what does he say? I shall be more undignified than this as I worship this God that loves me. And so what about you? Are you overcome by your need for Jesus this morning? Are you overwhelmed by, like, not only broken by your sin, but, like, broken by his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace extended to you? Or to say it maybe another way, do you believe that you will be surprised at who joins you at the table at the great marriage supper of the Lamb? I mean, this story... And other stories, like in a setting like this, it's Sunday morning, we're at church, there are young ears present. Like, I I can't even say the things that will be forgiven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like the kind of rough around the edges, ragamuffin, never got it together type people that will join us at the table with Jesus to the point where you and I will be scandalized that we're sitting next to them. The most grotesque sins that you and I can imagine, and worse than that, will be forgiven. It will be uh, quite a surprise to see who we share the table with in the new heavens and the new earth. But rest assured, they will be there with us. They will be there with us because they are us. The beleaguered, the half-hearted, broken, the beat up, those who are, who have tried so hard to be faithful and yet at times failed miserably, those who didn't measure up, those who felt guilty, who felt shame, who felt unworthy, and still Jesus comes to the table, says to you and to me, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. And this I hope is what you take away this morning, that you experience the love of Christ for you, that the penny drops, and that you understand the, 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 the sheer breadth and depth and width and height and love of Jesus Christ for you, that you won't be afraid to make a fool of yourself at dinner sometimes, to be, uh, you know, to be associated with certain types of people. You definitely won't be embarrassed by a hat because our relationships with the marginalized in our community, both in and outside the church, that's an important distinction, both in the church and outside the church, must begin with a sense of God's grace, of who God is, of what Jesus is about. But it's not just about our grace, about understanding God's grace for them, whoever they are, but it's about understanding God's grace for me. And this means being overwhelmed with my need for Jesus. It means placing relationships before rules. Some of you probably read this book uh, by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. We put it on the the web as like recommended reading for the series. But uh, she talks about our need to understand um, 
our need for grace, our need for Jesus, and how that would influence the way we live. She says it kind of strongly, but I think it's helpful, so I want to kind of finish with this. It says, it means that we know that only hypocrites and cowards let their words be stronger than their relationships. Making sneaky raids into culture on social media or behaving like moralizing social prigs in the neighborhood. That is Simon. Or that's us, hopefully, as we kind of undergo this change. Because the good news that we have to share with each other and that we have to share with the world is not that we've cleaned our act up, so now Jesus loves us. It is that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Eugene Peterson translates John chapter 1, verse 14. You've probably heard this translation. It's a famous line where he says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. If I could take a bit of poetic license, I would just add, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and invited us over for dinner. It is Jesus who brings us together around a table. It is Jesus who invites us to dinner. And I know this, this whole eating together just feels so anticlimactic. It doesn't feel very exciting. But as Tim Chester points out, and listen to the emphasis on relationship in this, in this section, meals also have the power to shape and reshape community. A person to whom we related as a person to whom we may have related in one role becomes a person to whom we relate as friends. Serving another changes the dynamics of relationship. The leader who serves at table is no longer aloof. This is what Jesus is doing in eating with the marginalized. The marginalized cease to be marginal when they are included around a meal, a table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become friends. Who knew that the thing God would use to change the world would be something as simple as some bread and some wine as a shared meal together? It seems foolish, if I'm honest. Not very smart. But as Paul writes, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for the way that he shows us the nature of your love and your forgiveness and just the overwhelming nature of your grace. Lord, I pray that we would be so sure of your love for us, so sure of our need to to have you in our life, to be with you at the table, that we'd be so sure of our need for forgiveness that we would understand um, all the ways that we can share it and extend it with others. I'm going to invite you to stand. You should have communion elements in front of you. So I don't want to get lost in the weeds um, with this last little comment, but as I mentioned, originally the Lord's Supper, it was a whole meal. It wasn't just the wafer and the cup. It was a, a meal together as a church family. 
um, common union around a table. And uh, I think we'll see this a little bit in how Paul talks about it to the Corinthian church. Um, He writes this, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Receive the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup. After supper, after supper, so it was a whole meal, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. And all my life, you have been faithful. And all my life, you have been so. So good with every breath that I am able. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And all my life, you have been faithful. And all my life, you have been so. So good with every breath that I am able. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. I will sing of the goodness of God.
today with a benediction. Gracious and hospitable Father, strengthen us in the power of the Holy Spirit. As those who have a seat at your table, help us to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Help us in the week ahead as those who have been welcomed to welcome the stranger, as those who have been fed to feed the hungry, as those who have been set free to sit with those in prison, as those who have been healed to touch the afflicted, and as those who have been found to join you in seeking and saving the lost. As those who have received, help us give generously. And as those who have heard, help us proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 